صباح الخير جود مورنينج دي ليسنرز يو ليسنينج تو راديو 3 سي ار اون 855 اي ام اند باليستاين ريمبرد وذ روبرت مارتن ناصر مشني اند يوسف احمد الريماوي Palestine Remembered is Australia's only English language radio program that is totally dedicated to Palestine. We'd like to welcome those listening on 855 and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Bringing you the news and views and the untold side of the Palestinian struggle for freedom from a Palestinian perspective. Good morning, listeners, and welcome to 2023 and another year of Palestine Remembered. We hope to continue to bring you news and views from Palestine and all over the world. As we know, recently Israel's elected its most right-wing and fascist government to date. A recent guest on the show, Dr. Josh Rubner, who's the Director of Government Relations at the Institute for Middle East Understanding, interviewed Dr. Diana Butu and Gideon Levy. Diana, as our regular listeners will know, have been on the show a number of times. And for those that don't know, Gideon Levy is a Haaretz journalist. Stay tuned and listen to this fantastic interview. Good morning. My name is Josh Rubner. I'm the Director of Government Relations with the Institute for Middle East Understanding. Thank you so much to all of you for joining us this morning for this very important conversation that we're going to have on the establishment of the new Israeli government the fifth Israeli government in the past two years and the most extreme, not only of all of the Israeli governments over the past two years, but arguably in the entire history of the country. And to join us here to discuss these important issues, we have two uh, extremely, extremely knowledgeable and profound guests with us. I will introduce both of them. Our first panelist, is Deanna Butu. Deanna is a Ramallah-based political analyst, former legal advisor to PLO Chair Mahmoud Abbas and to Palestinian negotiators, and a policy advisor to Ashabaka, the Palestinian Policy Network. She was also a fellow at the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, which has been in the news quite recently for reasons related to our conversation today. And she's also a Palestinian citizen of Israel. After earning a law degree from Queen's University in Canada and a master's of law from Stanford University, Deanna moved to Palestine in 2000. And shortly after her arrival, the second Intifada began and she took a position with the negotiation support unit of the PLO. After Deanna gives some opening remarks, we'll hear from Gidon Levy, Gidon Levy is a preeminent Israeli journalist, editor, and author. Gidon writes opinion pieces in a weekly column for the newspaper Haaretz. And in 2021, he was recognized with the Sokolov Award, Israel's top award for journalism. He's also the recipient of the Emil Grunzweig Human Rights Award in 1996 from the Association for Civil Rights in Israel the Anna Lynn Foundation Journalism Award in 2008, and the Peace Through Media Award in 2012. He's the author of two books, Twilight Zone, Life and Death Under Israeli Occupation, and The Punishment of Gaza. We're incredibly fortunate to have both of these outstanding panelists join us here today to guide us in this important conversation about 
what this new Israeli government will mean in terms of U.S. policy and its impact on the Palestinian people. Deanna, over to you. Thank you very much, Josh. And it's really a delight to be here with you again, Gideon, uh, on this panel. It's And thank you, everyone, for joining us today. I think in terms of um, where to begin, it's important to begin by stating just a few basic things when it comes to this government. This government has been in office now for just a little over two weeks. And one thing that's important to note when it comes to this government is that unlike other uh, Israeli governments who have had the ability to hide behind different policies, po policies that specifically relate to Israelis or to the economy or what have you, this particular government is a government that is practically exclusively focused on Palestinians and on uh, making sure that they implement policies that will forever harm Palestinians. This was stated in their party platforms when they were elected. And when uh, on the eve before Netanyahu was sworn into office once again, he made it clear by saying that this government intends to build and expand more and more settlements in the West Bank, that self-determination is only for the Jewish people, not for Palestinians, and, uh, and that this government is going to continue to proceed ahead with all of the various plans that it's had in the past. I say this because um, it's, it's, it's simple for us to say that this government is like the other governments. And in one case it is. If you look at, for example, the year 2022, uh, the year in which we had Lapid and Bennett in office, these were the people who were in opposition to Netanyahu. Um, Israel killed more Palestinians in the West Bank in the year 2022 than it did in any other year except for 2005, uh, at the time when the Intifada was taking place. And I say this because one of the consistence that you see with each and every Israeli government is everything from maintaining Jewish supremacy, make, making sure that um, settlements continue, are built and expanded, making sure that policies of ethnic cleansing are in place. And of course, the policies of continuing to attack Palestinians continue to be in place as well as home demolitions. This is a feature of each and every Israeli government. The difference, however, with this new government is that this new government is um, not only filled with people who, who actively believe in, in ethnic cleansing, but aren't shy about it at all and have come out with uh, statements saying that people like me, Palestinians who hold uh, Israeli citizenship, that we are here by mistake. And the, and the reason that we're here by mistake is because uh, Ben-Gurion didn't finish off the job in 1948 and that we are here for a temporary period. This is Smotrich. Uh, we've also heard um, Itamar Ben-Gvir throughout his election campaign Talk about, talk about showing people who are the masters of the house. So if you have a master of a house, then obviously there's a servant in the house. And his point is, is that we are the servants. He has also praised uh, Baruch Goldstein, a man who massacred 29 Palestinians as they were praying in the mosque in Hebron in 1994. 
and used to have a picture of him in his in his uh, in his office. He took it. He's since taken it down. But taking down a picture doesn't mean that he's taken the ideals out of his heart. He still believes this. And so I say this because they're clear in terms of what their positions are. They're clear in terms of what they intend to do. They're, and we've seen just in the past two weeks what they've done. Everything from declaring that more settlements will be built, from uh, Israel demolishing more Palestinian homes, Israel killing at least one Palestinian a day since the start of the year, Israel in announcing that it's going to uh, carry out the plans of ethnically cleansing Musafariyata and other Palestinian towns that are in the West Bank. Uh, we've also seen that, is, that Itamar Ben-Gvir went on to the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound. And, uh, and so what, it's, what is clear is, and, and they've also announced that they are thinking of revoking the citizenship of Palestinians who hold Israeli citizenship if they are, quote, disloyal to the state. Um, and so it's clear that that the when we sounded the alarm back when this government elect, was elected back in November, that this is precisely what is happening. And it's only been a matter of two weeks. The alarming part is that the that the international community and in particular the United States continues to behave as though this is business as usual. And the alarming part is that they say that they're going to look at policy and not at the actors. And yet you can only imagine if this had been in any other place around the world or if the, the roles were the opposite, how the US would be reacting. So I'm gonna stop here and leave, leave um, ample space for Gideon to speak. But my point is, is that if we are going to, if the world is, actually believes in saying no to fascism, then this, then Israel now needs to pay a price, because without paying a price, I fear that the the next government is even going to be even further to the right of this government. And in the words of Itamar Ben Gvir on the night of the election, he, as people were cheering him, he said to everybody, "Calm it down. I'm not prime minister." yet. Thank you so much, Deanna, for those really important framing remarks. And I'm going to come back to you to amplify some of what you mentioned a little bit later, but I want to turn it over to Guidon right now to offer some uh, opening remarks. Thank you, Josh. And thank you, Diana. I couldn't uh, agree more. And I want to continue exactly from the place that you stopped and not repeat because you really draw the picture. And I want to take it one step forwards. In a very unusual moment, I am optimistic for a moment. This didn't happen to me much in my career. All the terrible things that Diana was describing so correctly, and more to come, obviously, can, can also, might also be a source of hope. And Diana hinted on it. There might be a point in which Israel will force the international community to get down from the fence and to start to be active. This government might bring us there. It is not guaranteed by all means not. First, until now, this government just talks. We have to see the deeds. But what is much more important than this we are so scarred from uh, hopes from the international community, which were never fulfilled, 
that one might think that even if this government will do the worst things, the worst crimes, maybe Israel will still remain the darling of the West with total immunity and total uh, um, amnesty for anything it does. But having said this, there is a chance that this government will bring us to a new place. You can see it already in the first two weeks. First of all, turmoil in the Israeli society, which is also something quite remarkable. After years and years of apathy and indifference, the Israeli society, or at least parts in Israeli society, are in a situation of, of, of unrest, a situation of, of turmoil, not for the right reasons. Don't be mistaken. They don't care now, even those who are so disturbed about what is going to happen to the Palestinians. This is more or less the last consideration in Israeli society. But there is a real fear in certain circles from this government, namely that this government is going to shake what is defined as Israeli democracy. One can ask, can it be a democracy in an apartheid state? But the way that Israelis see it is that this liberal democracy, as Yair Lapid wrote today in Haaretz, this liberal democracy is, is in danger. And this brings people to be uh, very, very active after many years that they wouldn't. I see even the discourse, first time after many years that people start to talk about collective issues, about national issues, about politics. For so many years in Israel, people spoke only about the next vacation and the new Jeep. All of a sudden, there is also a sense of, of worries about our collective future together. And that's a good sign. But what is much more promising is obviously if this government will take measures that will not leave mainly the United States and the EU, it will not leave them any option but to react. And there are certain things that this government can do which might really be too much even for the United States. Above all, obviously, annexation, but I think they will be more careful about the annexation. And I'm not sure that annexation is so necessary. The occupied territories were annexated a long time ago and are annexated and will stay annexated maybe forever. But for those who care about the legal aspect, this step can be uh, one step too much for the West. But also things can get out of control. The rhetoric right now is very aggressive. And I totally agree with Diana, all the cover-ups and all the justifications, by the end of the day, the main target are the Palestinians for this government. Not so much for Netanyahu himself, but for his partners, and he's quite taken hostage by, by his partners in this government. And he, for, for his partners, there is one goal, a Jewish state, which means that only Jews will live in it, or at least only Jews will be seen or only Jews will have 
any rights. And for this, they might do many things. And, you know, with all the cynical attitude of the United States and the lip services, the hollow lip services of the EU, there might be a point in which they will be forced to react. And that's the hope for, for now. Thank you so much, Gidon. I really like how you frame the precarious balance between a real fear of the terrible things that could happen and with a dose of hope. So thank you for both of you to those for those opening comments. Uh, Deanna, I want to come back to you because you wrote a recent op-ed in the New York Times, and I'm going to drop the link to that in a second. You wrote, I, along with other Palestinians in Israel and in the occupied territories, am filled with dread about what the next few years will bring. Every day since the elections, Palestinians wake up with a what now apprehension, and more often than not, there's yet another bit of news that adds to our anxiety. The atmosphere of racism is so acute that I hesitate to speak or read Arabic on public transportation. Palestinian rights have been pushed to the back burner. We Palestinians live knowing that a vast majority of Israeli politicians don't support an end to Israel's military rule over the West Bank and Gaza Strip or equality for all of its citizens. We are made to feel we are interlopers whose presence is temporary and simply being tolerated until such time as it is feasible to get rid of us. My question to you after these powerful words that you wrote in the New York Times is after witnessing the actions of the Israeli government, even though it's only been a few weeks, are you more or less apprehensive about what you wrote based on those actions? Oh, where do I begin, Josh? It's hard to hear the words um, read back to me because that was written a little bit over a month, or I guess a month ago, and and it's only gotten worse um, since then. For example, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, yesterday, I was on uh, the train going down from from Haifa down to Jerusalem, and not only was I afraid to speak Arabic. Um, but when I did speak Arabic, when I, when I was speaking to somebody who only speaks Arabic, uh, I was told that I should stop because it was disturbing to them. And uh, and so, you know, I'm a person who I can push back, I can speak another language, I'm not easily intimidated, etc. But I wonder about what this environment that has been created, where it allows an 18-year-old or a 19-year-old who's carrying a gun to approach somebody like me and to tell me that I shouldn't be speaking my language on public transit. And it's only, um, this is just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, in the place, I, I live in a, in a community in Haifa, which Israel loves to, to, to tout as being one that is based on coexistence, uh, but it's not. All that it is is that there are people of different faiths living in the city but it doesn't mean that it's coexistence. What it means is that uh, we, we are all there, but the minute that I try to express my identity as a Palestinian, the machinery of the state comes down on me. And I say this because in the area in which I live in Haifa is um, not only a, a Palestinian area, but it's, but it's also, um, there are, it is a mixed area, meaning that there are um, majority Palestinians, but there are uh, Jewish Israelis who are living there as well. 
And the day after the election, um, I was looking around and you can, you know, you can uh, go on there on the website to see which one of the polling stations, how people voted, not individuals, but the general polling station, how people voted. And even in my area, which is predominantly Palestinian, where there are some Jewish Israelis, I was left looking around and wondering which one of my neighbors, because it's a small community, had voted for Ben Gvir. So this sense of dread that you have is not just a, a sense, but that you know that people are looking around at you and hoping for your demise. They want to see you gone. So they either uh, agree with the policies of Netanyahu, Ben Gvir, Smotrich, and so on, or they're excusing those policies. And either way, for Palestinians, um, you can see what the result is. Now, as I already mentioned, just in the in the two weeks that this government has been in, in place, Israel has killed more people in these first two weeks of, of the new year than it did of the first two weeks of last year. And I already mentioned that 2022 was the highest number of, uh, like Israel killed more Palestinians in 2022 than it did in any other year. And so we've already surpassed that. Every day we wake up to hearing about somebody else being killed. Every day we wake up to a new measure that is being introduced against us. Every day we wake up to hearing about the masafariyatas or about a new settlement that's being built or land that's being confiscated or homes that are being demolished or a raid in Janine. This is every single day. And every single day you look around in your neighborhood and realize that it's not just the politicians who want to see you gone, but it's the public as well. There is no left wing in Israel. And, um, and, and you know that it's just a question of time before, before they come up with some excuse to, to do what it is that they want to do. My, all of my friends are talking about immigrating now, each and every one of them. Wow. Uh, it's just chilling and scary. You don't, I wanna turn to you because you wrote in your column in Haaretz a couple weeks ago, that the sixth Netanyahu government is less than one week old and our heads are spinning from the tsunami of draft bills, some of them insane from the changes that have been introduced, most of them horrifying, and from the new agenda that has hit us like a storm, most of it ominous. You can say that anything about the new government except that it doesn't know what it wants, that it isn't revolutionary, and that it isn't trying to turn Israel upside down convulse its institutions and establish irreversible facts on the ground. Will it succeed? It's too soon to tell. Perhaps it's all just idle talk and it's best if that was the case. So can you explain to us what are these far reaching agenda items of this uh, current government and how Will Israel be different if the Netanyahu government does succeed in implementing everything that's on its agenda? So first of all, Josh, let me just, uh, I, I cannot ignore what Diana said because it was very emotional and it touched very much uh, my heart and, and your heart and I guess all our listeners. When I spoke about the source of hope, I knew that this 
quite far-fetched source of hope has a price. And the price is what Diana is describing. And the price can be much bigger. And the fears are, you know, when they were just selected, as you just read my piece from one week ago, I was still thinking that maybe it's just rhetorics and they will not do much. But every day now I realize how wrong I was. And those people are there to act and to act brutally. Some of them are really bullies like Ben Gvir himself. Some of them are very sophisticated like the new minister of justice who is doing now a whole revolution in Israeli uh, uh, law and legislation. But by the end of the day, the first victims, not the only one, but the first victims will be obviously the Palestinians, both the Israeli Palestinians and the Palestinians in, in the occupied territories. That's very obvious. Now, how big will be the sacrifice? It's, it's early to say. It seems, at least in the rhetoric, that those people have no limits, no limits. And the grand plan is now exposed. It's very clear that the grand plan is another Nakba. That's the dream. I don't say that it's going to happen. By all means, not. But if you ask those people who speak about the mistakes of 48, that we didn't finish the job, that's the grand plan. They know it's impossible right now. It might happen under a war, under the dust of a war. It might happen gradually when we don't even feel it and all of a sudden we realize. I think that the first, and I guess Diana will agree with me, one of the first goals of all the new legislations namely to weaken the Supreme Court, will be to delegitimize the Palestinian parties. I think the next Israeli Knesset will be all Jewish. They, the law is already very clear about it. If you don't recognize Israel as a Jewish and democratic state, you can't run for the parliament. No Palestinian with dignity can recognize Israel, his country, as a Jewish state. And here we are, maybe in the coming elections already, with the old Jewish parliament, or with some Palestinian puppets, but not a real representation as we still have today. The joint list and other lists are still an authentic representation for the Palestinians. So this might be the first step. And the fact that the Supreme Court, which I have so little respect to, but this Supreme Court prevented until now banning those, those parties because they were always a ballad. Every election was banned and then the Supreme Court re-legitimized it. Now there is no Supreme Court if, if they go on like this. But I think above all, we should look at the new atmosphere, the zeitgeist, and it's changing rapidly. The soldiers, the mob, the bullies, 
in Tel Aviv and in Janine, in, in Haifa and in Hebron. They know that now everything is legal. They know, or the soldiers obviously, more than before, that nothing will ha happen that to them if they will just shoot Arabs for the fun, not only for some far-fetched uh, justifications, but just, you know, being bored or looking for some action or looking for some uh, 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 masculine pride, they will just shoot and nothing will happen to them. They know it by now. The, and the same, by the way, inside Israel. Now to beat a, a Palestinian taxi driver, you have really a guarantee signed by the government that nothing will happen to you. And that's very dangerous. This can go very, very far, much farther than I saw two weeks ago. Wow. Uh, I knew that this new Israeli government was bad, but after hearing from both of you about it, it's much more chilling and dangerous and explosive situation that I even thought was possible. And thank you for sharing these important and, and, and darkly disturbing observations about what's transpiring right now, but it's it's necessary to talk about this. And I wanna ask, using my moderator privilege, one question before I open it up to our audience. And you can ask a question by using the Q&A function. Um, it seems that in light of everything that both of you have mentioned over the past half hour or so, that the Biden administration's response has just been completely divorced from reality. Deanna, I think it was you who mentioned uh, at the outset what Secretary of State Tony Blinken said, that the U.S. will judge the Israeli government by its policies, not by its politicians. But as you've both made extremely clear, these politicians that have been elected and are now governing in Israel are clearly driving an agenda that runs counter to what the U.S. says its policy is. So Blinken has stated that the U.S. will, quote, continue to unequivocally oppose any acts that undermine the prospects of a two-state solution. I'd like you to comment on whether that's even still an option, uh, including but not limited to settlement expansion, moves towards annexation of the West Bank, disruption to the historic status quo, holy sites, demolitions and evictions and incitement to violence. So given everything that you both have said, is the Israeli government likely to take seriously this type of rhetorical opposition that we've heard in the past from the United States? And if not, what else should the Biden administration, especially for this audience today, what should Congress be doing to actually impose tangible consequences on Israel for this anti-democratic and quite frankly, racist and fascist governing agenda that you both have laid out. I'll let either of you start. So first I want to ask you if you're, are you serious? I'm sure you are not serious because you know, Israel learned so many years ago that those holo condemnations, there were years in which Israel was really scared every statement by the uh, state, uh, Secretary of State or by the State Department about every new terrace which was built in the settlements, they would get very 
nervous. You must be joking. Israel knows very well that it can do whatever it wants. And neither Biden nor even Obama, our greatest hope ever, would do something. And now we have, it must be very clear, Josh, it's not about talking anymore. With talking, yes, maybe the Americans will talk, change the tone a little bit. Who knows? It's about taking measures, taking actions. If not this, everything else is totally tasteless and hollow because Israel learned to ignore it. It took to the EU and to the United States weeks from the invasion to, to Crimea until Russia got sanctions. It took 55 years and even mentioning sanction toward Israel is labeled as anti-Semitism and nobody even dares to put it on the table as a possibility. Don't you dare even to mention it. Sanctions on Israel? So the real question is not if the rhetoric will become sharper. The real question is what will be the stage in which we will, not we, you, will switch from talkings to actions. And I can assure you one thing. The world will be surprised how efficient those actions will be. The world will surprise how easy Israel will change its policies when it will pay for them, when every Israeli will understand that he is paying something for those crimes. Unfortunately, after 55 years, nobody paid anything and nobody was punished for anything. Once this will change, it might create a big change, but we are not there. Not there. I don't see neither Biden nor Blinken. Yes, he is coming now to Israel. He will try to calm down. He's still speaking about this two-state solution. I mean, what else can you ask after talking today with 700,000 settlers about the two-state solution? Those people are really looking only for lip services, nothing but lip services. Deanna, would you like to add? You know, I mean, they believe in the tooth. They believe in the two-state solution. I believe in the tooth fairy. I mean, it's the equivalent at this point, and uh, and and the fact that they keep talking about it over and over and over again, it shows not only how disconnected from reality the U.S. is, but because they don't see the reality on the ground. Um, the reality is that if it if Israel had wanted to see a free and independent state of Palestine, it would have happened already. But Israel is not at all interested. And the US has shown that it's also not interested. Um, and so this just becomes the these like phraseologies, word salad that is used over and over and over again uh, because they really fundamentally don't wanna address this issue. One of the things, Josh, that is so interesting when we when uh, when I'm listening to what Gideon just said is that not only have Israel Israelis not paid a price, they've actually been on they've been on the receiving end of positive action. So everything from the the money that is received uh, by by Israel 
more than any other country around the world, more than the entire continent of Africa combined, if you just remove Egypt. Um, not only does Israel get more money, but we're even now talking about visa-free entry into the United States. Um, and so it keeps just getting more and more benefits. So the message that Israel and the Israelis have gotten is keep doing what you're doing because you're going to get rewarded for your actions. There's not gonna be any, any pushback whatsoever. So in terms of the things that uh, can be done, obviously um, canceling the money to Israel is, is one step. But it's also beyond that. It's also making clear that there are red lines. And instead of them pronouncing red lines and sticking to those red lines, they, they take the approach of, um, of dangling a carrot always in front of Israel. And so Israel gobbles the carrot and then wants more carrots. It's, this, it's, it's a constant pattern of just uh, cajoling Israel, never stating definitively what the red lines are, never holding firm to those red lines, and instead giving Israel um, endless benefits. So I personally would love to see the end of money that's going to Israel. It could be used on US citizens as well. I would love to see the end of the diplomatic protection that the US gives Israel, not only um, in places like the UN, but also at the International Criminal Court where Palestinians are trying to seek justice for the murder of Shirin Abu Akhri, the murder of other journalists, the construction of settlements. It's not just that the US is, um, is, is doing nothing, they're actually active in trying to block Palestinian rights. And that's what I would love to see the end of. Yeah, just picking up what you said, Deanna, about red lines. In fact, U.S. Ambassador to Israel Tom Nides gave an interview to Israeli media a couple of days ago, and he said, I don't do red lines. And when asked if he would boycott even Ben Gvir, he said, I don't do boycotts. So there are absolutely no, no lines, you know, no limits to what the Biden administration will do to support even this Israeli government. So I want to ask uh, this question that came in and get your opinions on it. It relates to two specific ministers in the Israeli government, their positions and the relations that it portends for the Palestinian people. So Itamar Ben-Gvir, who you, I think both have mentioned is national security minister and he has some responsibilities for the border police. And Bitsalel Smotrich is both finance minister and Gidon, maybe you can explain this for us, what minister within the defense ministry means. He's been given authority over the civil administration. What are these positions? What are the border police? What are the civil administration? What do these two individuals in power in these positions mean for Palestinians? Only bad things, obviously. <laughs> uh, the border police is a unit, a big unit in the Israeli police, not in the Israeli army, which is partly and mainly in the occupied territories, but not only there. It's combined, the, the soldiers or the policemen in this unit 
are not by chance coming from the lower classes of the Jewish society, Ethiopians, Druze, and even Muslims. And in a very cynical way, Israel is sending them to be in the front line vis-a-vis -vis the civil population in the West Bank. Uh, I'm sure Diana will agree with me. If you ask a Palestinian, he will tell you that the Jews, for example, are the worst, much worse than the Jews in the border police. But in any case, the border police is a very brutal army. And if this is not enough, now it gets a spiritual leader in the face of, uh, of Itamar Ben-Gvir, who is a bully. I know him for many years uh, with quite uh, charisma. He's a street kid, if I may say so. Uh, not motivated so much by ideology and motivated much more by emotions. Uh, quite a simple guy, but very, very devoted. And uh, for him, a settler by himself, obviously. And for him, uh, Arabs are not uh, human beings. I mean, as simple as this. He will try to motivate, to, to take this unit, which is in any case very brutal, and make it even more brutal. And he, he will find it very easy, by the way, because most of those who serve in the occupied territories feel that the politicians are limiting them. They would like to shoot more. They would like to beat more. They would like to arrest more. That's the sentiment. It's not like you have to make some effort to, to convince those young people to do those things. They are eager to do them, most of them, not all of them, obviously. But those who go there to serve in the occupied territories are going with a lot of eagerness and many times even bloodthirst, I must say it. And I, I say it based on what I see. Now, uh, Smotrich is a different character. He's much more sophisticated than Ben-Gvir, uh, much more dangerous, much more serious. Uh, he's much less motivated by emotions. He's the Minister of Finance, but for him, finance is the last worry of his life. The only worry for him is to strengthen the settlements and obviously to push the Palestinians as much as possible to, to the corner. And uh, therefore, he one of his conditions was, which is unheard of, I mean, you are minus, Minister of Finance, which is really a hell of a job in Israel, not enough. He wants also to have a say about anything which is concerning the occupation as a minister in the Minister of, of uh, Defense. Add to this that the, the, the real Minister of Defense is an ex-general, quite a weak character who will do anything that Netanyahu will tell him. So you get a picture in which Smotrich will be very involved. Smotrich by himself obviously is a settler and a hard, hardcore settler. And this Motrich will be uh, the real uh, new lord of the, of, of the territories, the real commander of the territories. This is a very explosive situation. Deanna, would you like to add? 
I just wanted to add that um, one of the reasons that Smotrich was demanding this position was um, because there's a, a terminology that, it, that Israel uses, which kind of makes no sense. They call it the civil administration. There's nothing civil about it. It's the army administration. It's the army that is that is overseeing the West Bank and, uh, and everything from the construction of settlements in the West Bank to permits for Palestinian houses and so on. And one of the reasons that Smotrich wanted to have a, a position within, as he puts it, the Ministry of Defense was so that he would be able to be the person who's controlling the establishment of the settlements, but also making sure that Palestinians are not allowed to build on their own land within the West Bank. He was one of the founders of, a, of an organization called Regavim, which has been one of these NGOs that has done everything in its power to try to block Palestinians from being able to build on their own land, but has also been an organization that has pushed for the demolition of entire Palestinian um, villages in the West Bank. So it's not just by chance that he wanted to have this post, but it's an ideological post and it's an ideological reason continuing along the work that he did when it came to Regavim um, a, a few years ago when he first when he first founded it and has has moved on since. And when it comes to Benigvir, one of the again, here's another uh, piece of irony is that uh, he himself is a lawyer, but he's been on more sides on the other side of the law than he's been on the right side of the law. He's been indicted 50 times um, for, for, uh, for carrying out, uh, for acts of incitement against Palestinians. And he was actually convicted once. So the, the fact that this is the person who is in charge of, of, uh, of this particular uh, portfolio just shows where, he, where his ideology is. That, this is why when I say that we live it with fear and dread, it's because the very people who have had a history and, and who know, who ha have ideologically taken on positions that harm Palestinians are now in these positions, not on the outside, but in positions of power with world leaders welcoming them. Um, we haven't seen that this government has been shunned in any way by any country whatsoever. None. Just truly, truly chilling everything that both of you have to say. And we have a lot of really great questions coming in. Unfortunately, we're not going to be able to get to all of them, but maybe I'll combine a couple together and you can answer those that um, most speak to you. Um, number one, can you talk to us about what Ben Gvir and others in this coalition um, mean when they talk about trying to change the status quo on the Noble Sanctuary Temple Mount? And then also, do we need to start preparing ourselves in this country amongst decision makers for having conversations about the possibility of mass killings, either by the Israeli government or by settler terrorist groups? the potential of mass ethnic cleansing? Do we need to be thinking along those kind of lines in your estimation? 
Uh, about the changing, uh, look, Al-Aqsa, this point must be clarified because people tend to think, and I don't know what Diana think about it, but people tend to think that the dispute over Al-Aqsa is a religious one. It's not at all. I mean, it is, but that's not the point at all. The point is that Al-Aqsa is the last remain of sovereignty of the Palestinians in the world. I think it's the only, this tiny, tiny hill is the only place in the world where Palestinians have some kind of sovereignty. And that's the point. We, those Benghvirs, nothing to do with religion, want to smash even this last outpost and to show the Palestinians that even not one inch in this country belongs to them. That's the way it should be seen. And changing the status quo, meaning uh, letting uh, Jews uh, pray there, according to most of the Jewish rabbis, this is against the Jewish uh, religion, by the way, to pray in the Temple Mountain. I don't want to get into it, but uh, it's all political and it's all about demonstrating sovereignty there, demonstrating force there, power there. As for a... Look, mass killings and mass uh, deportations don't start at once. It's not like Israel will tomorrow uh, call uh, 5 million Palestinians or 3 million Palestinians in the West Bank and tell them, get on the buses and go to Jordan. It doesn't happen like this. It is a, a, a process which started, by the way, long time ago, mainly in Safariata in southern Hebron and in the Jordan Valley, where the weakest populations are and where Israel would want it really to be total Jewish so it can annexate it because those are the two extreme, geographically extreme points which enable Israel to control a, a, the border with Jordan and to have more land in the south. But it can get into it very fast. So therefore, yes, we have to prepare ourselves for new phenomena because this rhetoric can create, as I tried to say before, legitimacy for all kinds of actions. And this can deteriorate very quickly. And mass killing, Today, look, in the last day, I think in the last 24 hours, there were five Palestinians killed, including a father who tried to save his son from being detained. Imagine yourself. A father tries to save his son from the small son, I guess, because he was young by himself, from the soldiers, and he's being shot dead. This will continue now because there are no consequences to, to those actions. So very soon, so now it's three a day, four a day, five a day, and then it will be six and seven and eight, and there will be an incident, it will be maybe more. I've been this week in the uh, Janine refugee camp, a place which is really a remarkable place, a real aut autonomy and an alternative reality. The IDF doesn't dare to get in for one year now into the camp. The PA didn't get there for years. They don't want any Israeli to come in. Really courageous spirit of young people who are ready to sacrifice 
anything, anything. And they told me there, if the army will come in, there will be a massacre here. It's very clear. This time it's very clear because they are also better prepared than in the second intifada. I don't want to get into details because our time is running out. The only thing is that they mentioned Ukraine. And I thought about Bocha. Jenin can become Bocha within tomorrow morning. If the IDF goes into the refugee camp of Jenin, not the city of Jenin, the refugee camp of Jenin, I can assure you, you will see mass killings and a real massacre. And then, you know, the sky is the limit. I, I wanted to say one th thing very quickly about the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound. Um, one of the problems has been the status quo. It's the fact that, that over the patent, let's be clear, the, the people who are going up to the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound, the, the Israelis who are doing it, they're not, as Gideon has already mentioned, this is not for religious reasons. It's because the aim, and they've made it clear, is to destroy Al-Aqsa and to replace it, to rebuild the temple. And, uh, and the, the problem has been that, that people have turned a blind eye to this status quo of allowing settlers to go up on the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound, the Haram Sharif. And, uh, and, it's, and what, what Ben Gvir is aiming to do is to precisely keep pushing it and pushing it and pushing it with, uh, with foreign governments coming out with the same, again, same world salad that we've seen when it comes to two-state solution. We believe in the status quo. But then what are they going to actually do to preserve that? And the answer we know is nothing. Uh, so that's why I'm worried about the, we're, we're still a few months off, but Ramadan that is just around the corner. This is the, the same unit that Benikvir is in charge of, is the same unit that shoots at Palestinians as they are um, in prayer during Ramadan. And that's the whole point is that they he wants to he wants to keep challenging he wants to turn it into something where where people presume that this is about religious freedom when it's not um, this is about ex expressing explicitly Israel's sovereignty over the area and that Palestinians have no right to be present anywhere and I agree with Gideon when it comes to the rest obviously I I also think that what Israel does is it's not you know what. They've learned that you don't do like one massive killing uh, over um, overnight or that you expel overnight, um, that the process is slow, methodical, as I put it, death by a thousand cuts. And that's what we're going to continue to see over the lifetime of this government and beyond is that making conditions so difficult for Palestinians that they leave whether it's through demolishing their homes in Musafariyata or um, put, enacting regulations where Palestinians are not allowed to enter into Jerusalem any longer. You name it, it's going to continue to be done. It's that slow, um, methodical way of, of, of asphyxiation. This has been such an incredibly solemn and disturbing, but very accurate conversation that we've had here over the past hour. And I really, really want to thank our two panelists, our two tremendous panelists, Gidon Levy and Deanna Butu, for 
sharing their incredibly important assessments with us today. We had here today uh, primarily an audience of people who work for members of Congress, members of the media, members of think tanks in the United States. And I hope the major takeaway that everyone gets from this webinar is to take incredibly seriously all of the very dire predictions and implications that Deanna and Guidon have fleshed out here for us today, and not to underestimate the seriousness and the gravity of the situation, and for the United States to hopefully, hopefully finally take more than just rhetorical lip service to seriously address this human rights crisis that we are under today and that the Palestinian people have been witnessing for the last 75 years and experiencing. Thank you, Guidon. Thank you, Deanna. Thank you all to uh, for those of you who attended today, and uh, we will be in touch with you all shortly. Thank you very much. That was Josh Rubner and the Institute for Middle East Understandings, Israel's new extremist government. He was joined by Diana Butu and Gideon Levy. I'm sure you'll agree, a fantastic panel, but such dire, dire predictions for what is going to happen inside Palestine in the days, weeks, months, and years ahead. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, share the podcast, and remember, there's never been a better time for a free Palestine. <laughs>